Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. Pretty much everything that we're going to look at is on the sheet, but since um, we have the Chumashim in front of us, do we still have the Chumashim in front of us? We can look at a little bit more of the context of that first verse. So if you have a Chumash, open it up to 146, 147. This is really going to be a deep dive into one word. Um, you know, occasionally that's the way I like to teach, just really going uh, into as many layers as possible in this pluripotent Hebrew that each word seems to have so many different potential associations. And the word is the word that connects Yaakov and his brother Esau from birth. And I will posit is still connecting their descendants until this day. And the question is, what is what are we, the descendants of Yaakov, supposed to do with this word? In what way can it be active? Should it be active or should it be excised from our spiritual vocabulary when we think about we as the descendants of Yaakov and whoever we imagine are the descendants of Esau? So to remind yourself, if you go back to um, page 147, um, verse 23, so if you're in a different Chumash at home, chapter 25 of Breshit, verse 23, Vayomer Adonai La, God said to her, her here is Rivka, who was upset and distressed because of the battling that was taking place in her womb between these twins. Shnei goyim bevidnech, you've got two nations in your beten, in your belly, in your womb. Ushnei leumim, leum is another word for nation, two peoples. Will burst forth from your innards. One will be str- uh, stronger than the other. And then a three word phrase, which we're not going to focus on, but in and of itself is interesting. The Ravya Avod Sa'ir, which seems to suggest that the older one will serve the younger, but it could also mean that the younger one will serve the over, depends on the younger one, depends on where you put the comma, but leave that aside. Verse 24. Vayim her days were complete for birth. and behold, God was right; there were indeed twins in her belly. admoni, first one came out red, admon like Adom. Kulok aderet se'ar, all of him was like a big uh, mantle of hair. esav, and they called him esav. and afterwards, yatsa achiv. His brother came out. Interesting that from the very first time that we meet Yaakov, we, we are introduced to him as a brother. That's what he is. But it's interesting that he's, he is identified in reference to Esav, right? He doesn't come out um, on his own. He comes out as a brother. V'yado ochezet ba'akev Esav. Yado, his hand. Ochezet, present tense, is grasping. Ba'akev on the akev, untranslated for the moment, of Esav. So the picture in our mind, right, if you've uh, ever been in a delivery room or you can imagine it, what do you picture? That Esav is already born. Here comes a second one, only referenced right now as a brother, and his hand is doing what? Grabbing the heel, right? Because Akev, one of the many things that Akev means could be heel, right? So it's almost as if they were born like, like Siamese, but not, um, but not uh, connected by by tissue, but there was no separation between them. They were, they were born as one, right? So Esav is out, but, ya- but the moment that Esav is out, Yaakov is already out-ish, because 
if he's holding on to Esau's ankle, then Yaakov's hand was born with Esau's body. Okay? Um, and for the moment, suspend your disbelief. We want to read this both as the Torah's truth and as some kind of an archetype for us to understand, right? We are being introduced right now to the man who we know, and the Torah already knew by now, was going to be the future of the Jewish people, the namesake of the Jewish people. And so we're being taught something, right? Very intentional about what Yisrael, who's going to emerge from Yaakov, is supposed to be about, right? The Torah goes on to say, Vayikrashmo Yaakov, and he called him Yaakov. Who's the he? Presumably Yitzchak, because Vayikra is masculine, so and it's not a passive verb. It doesn't say his name was called, which then you could later say, well, they discussed it, and they decided together uh, Yaakov. He called him Yaakov. Any other possibilities? God? Right? The only other male-ish voice in the scene is the Holy One. Maybe God gives the name. Hold on to that thought. That's one of the commentators' answers. And then we learn kind of a piece of information at the very end, which is not significant uh, to our discussion, but we never are supposed to read half a verse. So we'll finish the verse. And Isaac was 60 years old when, when they were born. We don't know how old Rivka was. Okay. Let's go back to verse 25. Uh, sorry, verse 26. What is your image of the scene and or what are, do you think we're supposed to be pulling from this scene? Why is this a significant thing for us to be told that the man who is Yaakov, who's going to become Yisrael, is holding on to uh, the Akev, the heel of Esau. And there is a microphone down there, so if you want to pass it around. Who's got, who's got a thought? What's it stand for and why? No wrong answers. It'd be very quick shiur. What does it mean to you? What's, what, what, what does it mean? Okay, so interesting, Heather's first answer, we may not be able to get the microphone around quickly enough, so I'll repeat, right? So Heather's first answer is, is wonderfully, wonderfully counter the narrative that we're about to know that it's helpful to try to forget a little bit in order to understand the text as it was, right? Heather said, they're connected, right? Why is that wonderful? Because we know that the thrust of the Torah after this and the Midrashic thrust is that the grasping does not seem to be a connection, intimacy, but a competition. But if you just look at the scene, right, they were born hugging-ish, right? And in fact, so much you could say, why is he called Yaakov? Because he's, he, he wants to be near his brother. He's holding on to his brother's Akiv. One possibility. Ben? <laughs> this comes from a sense of living in a Western tradition, which would also post-date roughly when this text is coming out. But there's, to me, I think of heel and I think of Achilles' heel, that there's some sort of like, Yaakov is his brother's weakness mm. to a certain extent from the minute they're born. Good. So Ben is connecting this to uh, the you know Greek mythology, which is a little bit contemporaneous with at least rabbinic midrash, right? That a heel is a is a weakness, right? Or at least it was for Achilles. And so Yaakov, by grasping on his brother's uh, heel, excuse me, he is representing his weakness, representing his potential downfall. Okay. Anyone else before we look at the next verse? Okay, so hold those two thoughts in your mind. Um, if you are a more than occasional shul goer, then when you hear the word um, a cave, the heel of Esav, and you hear the name Yaakov, your mind might be thinking about another use of that root. And let's go to the um, towards the end of the Torah, the um, third parsha of the book of Dvarim because we have this word there as well. 
We actually have a Parsha named after it. It's not named thematically, it's named because that's the first significant word in the, in the verse. But this is the first verse of Parshat Ekev. On the sheets, it's the second root, the second source. If you're from home and you don't have the sheet in front of you, it's, if you have a Tanakh, it's Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 12. God says, Vehaya, and it will be, Ekev tishmu'un et hamishpatim ha'ela. Very hard to actually translate the word Ekev in the sentence, certainly if you're translating it having to do with a body part. And it will be, heal if you listen to my commandments, a foot if you pay attention to my rules, right? It's hard to make sense of. Um, we have some idiomatic expressions in English that work, on the heels of, right? Or it follows that. So it could be that there, that in ancient Hebrew, as in modern English, the word that means this part of the body is ends up being related to causation, or at least to um, uh, to the order of things, right? It will be following that on the heels of your uh, observing the mishpatim, ushmartem basitem otam, and if you guard them and you do them, what's going to happen as a result? The fact that you have done this, v'shamar adonailo hechalacha tabrit v'tachesed, then God in turn will uh, prepare, protect for you the covenant that he made with you uh, and all of the righteousness that he swore to your ancestors. Turn the page, go to the next source. This is Rashi's famous, uh, at least for some famous commentary on Akev, where he, without mentioning our Parsha, is definitely connecting to it, at least etymologically, because saying Akev does not here mean an idiomatic on the heels of following that, but Akev here means heel. It actually means the part of the foot. How? Vahaya Akev Tishmun, and it will be that if you listen to the Akev, that's how you actually can translate the phrase um, grammatically. In other words, instead of Rashi saying Akev as kind of like an adverb, if you, you know, or not even an adverb, like a connecting word, following that, you're listening to the commandments. Rashi says, Vahaya Tishmu'un Akev. If you pay attention to the Akev, to the foot, in what way? Im ha-mitzvot kalot sh'adam dash ba'akevav tishmu'un. If those light mitzvot, those ones that no one pay attention to, that you are liable either consciously or unconsciously, intentionally or unintentionally, to trample with your feet, if you follow those, ah, then I'm going to be with you. God, as if God is saying, I know you're going to follow the big ones. I know you're not going to bow down to idols. I know you're probably not going to do, you know, uh, child sacrifice. But that's not what this covenant is based on. Transmute this into any relationship that you want to, right? Yeah, I trust that you're not going to commit adultery. I trust that you're not going to, you know, murder our children. But that's not what this marriage is based on. This marriage is based on the small things, the things that you might convince yourself are not significant. It's the resting on the laurels, assuming there's enough um, uh, connectivity tethering us together, and that, that's going to make this love last forever, person to person or God to Israel? Uh-uh. If you look at the things or the moments that you would be liable to tread on with your akeb, if you pay attention to where your foot is falling and choose not to put your foot there, you're about to step and realize, oh no, that's, this is a delicate moment. No one's watching. This is not one of the big ones, but, but this is a, a delicate thing that I'm, I'm going to trample. If I choose to put, put my foot somewhere else and not use my foot to trample on it, then God says to Israel, our relationship has a chance again, person to person, then the people whom we want to share any sorts of love within our lives might be around longer because we'll have earned it by treading lightly.
Okay, so in this commentary, Rashi is using the word akav to mean actually foot. If you're in my Rashi class, we all the time discuss, does Rashi actually think that that's what the verse means? Or is Rashi importing a midrash and selling it to you as pshat, as the simple reading of the text, but he knows that you know that he knows that it's a midrash. And we don't know, because we can't interview Rashi, right? In general, we think of Rashi as a pashtan, right? He tries to deliver the plainest meaning of the text. It doesn't seem right that Rashi would think that this is actually what God meant in the verse, but that's what Rashi is actually offering up to us, okay? Now, Rashi is not 100% internally consistent, not even 80% internally consistent. So when you look at Rashi in a commentary over there, and then you compare it with a commentary over here, don't necessarily expect them to always line up with each other. Now I want to read Rashi on our verse, right? Rashi on the first time the root Akev has been brought into the Torah. Just to remind you, we have been reading Rashi on Dvarim. So this is the next uh, commentary. On the phrase Ba'akev Esav, on the heel of Esav. Siman, this is a sign. This is a premonition. She'ein ze maspik ligbor machuto that this one is barely going to have finished his reign, his dominion. Who's the this one? Who's he referring to so far? Esav. Ad shezeh, until this one, Yaakov, the heel grabber, omeid, will stand up, vinotla, and will take it, what's the it? Dominion. Hemenu, from him. How is Rashi in this verse reading the word Akev in our verse, and what does he think it means? He's seeing it as a prophecy, that, that their birth is a prophecy that's going to say something about the end of days, or at least what's going to happen far in the future between the descendants of these two people. And how is it being read, Sheva? Right, just as Esav was born first and Yaakov is right there, so Esav will, he's not saying it, but he means it, die first. His, his ascendancy will come first. And his descent will come first. And when Esav descends, guess who will be there standing on the top of the mountain, having held on to his brother the entire way? Israel. Now, remember when Rashi is writing and in what historical context Rashi is living. Rashi is living in pre-Crusader or Crusader France. A significant amount of Rashi's literature is, is dripping, pun intended, with the blood of martyrs and with, with Christendom, which in the Jewish ideal is the descendant of Esav, how Esav becomes the father of Edom in the Torah. Edom gets traced in the rabbinic literature to Rome, and Rome becomes the Christian empire. You know, like world historians might not draw those connections, but we do, right? So when we see Christianity, we see that when, when, when uh, Crusader uh, era French medieval Jews saw the Pope, they saw Esav. And when they read Parshat Toldo, they saw the Pope. And the Pope back then was not the Pope of today, right? The Pope back then was, was destroying Jewish villages and raping Jewish women and killing Jewish babies, not personally, but theologically, essentially. And so what's Rashi doing here? Rashi is saying, you reader are seeing Esav being born first. You're seeing Yaakov holding on to him. That might look like a desperate act, like you know, like tr constantly trying to follow him. But if you constantly try to follow someone, you're going to follow them on the way up. You're also going to be up when that one eventually goes down. This is a uh, probably psychologically feel-good supersessionist idea. 
that, oh, Israel, you're at the bottom now. We're still holding on to Yaakov's foot, but one day we'll be at the top of the mountain. And he's pulling that all out of this scene and out of what he's looking at and seeing outside of his window. Questions, comments on that? The mic will never possibly get to the speaker on time. Go ahead. What Bob said was, say that again. As, as long as Jacob is strong, the Torah, well, what, see that in the Torah? Right. So the, it seems to say the opposite. The Torah says that phrase, Virav Yavod Sa'ir, which we said in the very beginning, could either mean the older one will serve the younger one. It could also mean the younger one will serve the older one. But it's certainly a fantasy that, that eventually Jacob's strength, Yaakov's strength, Israel's strength will be, will be present. And, it, and they can't be strong at the same time, right? But we see this playing out even to this day, right? We, uh, there's article after article for good reason about Jewish power, um, Jewish, um, um, Jewish wielding of, uh, of authority and hegemony in the land of Israel. And some of the battles playing out in Knesset right now has to do, it's more Yaakov, it's, it's more um, Yitzchak Yishmael than Yaakov Esav, but only one of us can hold on to dominion at the same time. It's a biblical prophecy, right? One of us is always holding on to the other one's heel, right? And um, if, if, if we're not the one wielding power, then we're the ones who are the butt of someone else's power, and we've been that way for too long. And however you vote and whatever you think about the politics, these are very old tropes, and the Jews have been on the wrong side of it for most of our history, right? So there's, there's, there's old wisdom in some even the most uh, extreme of the positions that are being represented by politicians today. Um, but, but it says strong, it means devoted. So hold, hold that thought, because the last commentary we'll look at, we'll come back to that, okay? So hold that thought. Um, look at the next source, Sforno. Sforno is an Italian commentator, a couple of hundred years uh, after Rashi, um, living under uh, markedly different circumstances, right? So to be a Jew uh, in Italy in, I think it's the 16th, maybe 15th century, was not nearly as challenging, not nearly uh, as subject to the, the whims of the local Christian hegemon as it was if you were living in Rashi's time. Um, and so you don't ne see nearly the same kind of um, inferiority complex that gets transmuted into a superiority complex in Sforno's commentary as you do in Rashi's. What does Rashi's, what does Sforno say? Vayikra Shemo Yaakov. His name was called Yaakov. Remember we asked the question before, who gave him the name? Sforno's going to read it as if God gave him the name, not his father. Yisha'er Ba'ekev Uvasof. I want to translate those three words very carefully. This is also a prediction. And what does it mean? He will remain. Who's the he? Jacob. Ba'ekev. He will remain at the end, at the, at the tail, right? So heel, if, if someone is running, the heel is at the end, right? So if you're at someone's heels, you're behind them. He, Yaakov, will remain behind, but not behind the sense of losing the race, meaning he'll be the last one standing. Uvasov. He will always be there. This is the teaching that comes to the fact that he's, he's constantly holding on to the heel of his brother, it's a similar version to similar understanding of Rashi. At the end of the race, it's not that he will have been behind and crossed the line afterwards. He will be the last one standing. Shekfar Amruzal, because uh, our sages said, Ha'eliyat Barach Karalo Kain. And Sforno, he refers to a midrash. You can see a little bit more of the midrash in the English. The, uh, this is the English. This is the English translation of Sforno's commentary from 
Asfari, and for some reason the English commentary kind of expands on it. Uh, the Hebrew doesn't have that there, but basically Sforna was quoting a midrash that basically brings the verse from the 46th chapter of Jeremiah, you see it there in English, where Jeremiah prophesies, I will make an end of all nations, meaning eventually the Hittites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and Rome and Greece will eventually, the sun will set on them. And this is pretty remarkable. We can say this as Jews in the 21st century, but I will not make an end of you, right? Mark Twain noticed that amazingness and we should notice it as well that m many if not most of the people that have once had dominion over us are no longer as an individuated nation and we remain Sforna would say see i told you so and the torah told you so as well up until now these commentaries seem to be reading the birth of esau and yaakov as predicting a future that is not in jacob's hands per se it's determined by god that their birth suggested that Esau would come first, he would come onto the stage first, Jacob is right behind him, and Esau will eventually leave the stage and Jacob will remain through none of our merit. We, nothing got mentioned so far in these commentaries that suggest we have to work towards this, we have to aspire towards this, we have to perspire towards this. It's just the way of the world, right? That in the birth of these twins, their eventual um, situation and Esau's eventual demise was predicted, so was Jacob's eventual ascent. With me so far? Final text. Commentary that I'd never come across before. I always love finding um, teachers and sages from the past that I had never met. This is a commentary called the Confein Nisharim, the wings of eagles. You know that phrase, one of the ways that uh, it, was it was described, um, God's uh, saving us from Egypt was described. Rabbi Avram Lichtenstein, he lived in Poland in the 18th century. Lichtenstein is a pretty common name. I have no idea if he's related to the prominent religious Zionist Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, who is the Rosh Hashiva of uh, Yeshivat uh, in the Gush uh, until his death about six or seven years ago. It could just be that it's the same name, but it's a, if you know 20th and early 21st century um, Israeli Judaism, the name Rabbi Lichtenstein uh, rings a bell, but I don't know if they're related. What does he say? My, and there are going to be parts of this commentary, which I think are going to properly um, make us a little bit uncomfortable, but I think there are parts of this commentary that are worth retrieving and restoring. The very thing that Esav would trample with his feet. Remember Rashi on Parshat Ekev that this notion of the heel is the heel grinding down things that don't matter. Jacob comes out holding Akav, uh, the Esav's Akav as if to say that very thing that my older brother is not going to pay attention to and he's going to trample. And for example, what? This guy Esav and his descendants is going to be demeaning and disparaging the principal ideas of Torah, obviously, because he's not a Jew and they're not going to be Israelites. Now we're hurling critiques, um, all sort of character, characterological critiques on the descendants of Esau. Not only are they not going to follow the principles of Torah, they're not going to do mitzvot, they're not even going to do good deeds. You and I both know that Christians are just as capable of doing good works in the world as are Jews. This is not what Rabbi Lichtenstein is saying, that the descendants of Esau are somehow characterologically broken, as was predicted by their ancestors' birth. The midot uva musar, and uh, high character traits and ethics, all those things that all of the descendants of Esau are not going to care a whit about, 
Kol ela ochez Yaakov biado. All of those things, Jacob, the one who was born that way, is going to be grasping them in his hand to do what with them? What's that? To observe them. To, to, observe them, to lift them up, to, to make life more beautiful and more moral as a result of it, right? The parts that are uncomfortable about this is the, the, the broad sweep with which a Polish rabbi in the 18th century, who might have come by it honestly also, said all of the descendants of Esav are shmut. And everywhere we look, we're seeing them trampled, the notion of, of Tzelem Elohim and the idea that people are, are, are born in the image of God and they certainly don't treat the Jews very well. And anything that's descended from Esav and Edom and Roman culture and Christian culture ended up in licentiousness and in pogroms and not for the Jews. And there's no goodness in Christendom. I'm sure he would have said that to his kahal. We would not say that, right? But, but we understand why they would say it, right? We would. Um, and it wasn't that long ago that was a common thing to hear from a pulpit and synagogue. And thank God we're not at that place, right? Although you can make the argument that maybe we are a little bit too comfortable with elements of the culture that have been handed to us, not from Jewish tradition, but from secular tradition. But yes, Heather, can we go ahead with the microphone? Wondering around about this verb, the mizalzel. It's a four-letter source. Yes. And I thought it's from the 1700s. Heather's asking about the root of the verb mizalzel. Uh, it's a four-letter root, and she was asking whether or not that's more common in modern Hebrew. The answer is it's more common in modern Hebrew, but it's not, it, it doesn't not exist even in biblical Hebrew. Um, mizalzel, the, the core root of mizalzel is Zion Lamed, and Zion Lamed or Zion Vav Lamed means cheap. Zol is, is cheapening. So lizalzel is to verily cheapen something. Right. Sometimes when you had a two letter root that was turned into a four letter root, it was kind of an intensifier of that notion uh, and sometimes not. But our best guess is that to to be mizalzel is to show your um, your um, the, the fact that you do not give reverence to something because you're cheapening it. Rabbi Chorney, Kenner Chorney, uh, can someone throw the microphone over there? I really like this teaching a lot in in um, in the context of some of the learning I've done over the years about how we once upon a time kept the Aseret uh, Dibrot in our Sidor and then eventually wound up taking it out for the most part. Almost every single Sidor across the board, across the Jewish people, has now taken out the Aseret Dibrot. And the reason that Aseret it was taken... Dibrot? Yeah, the, ten, the, the idea that the ten commandments came out of the Sidor was in response to the idea of this sort of mizalzeling of the commandments by the cultures around us, that there was a cheapening of commandments by the Christologically uh, influenced cultures around us, that there was this idea of a broader ethic, but not of specific ways of behavior and lest we believe that there were only 10 important uh, rules by which one could live, we took that out of our Sidor as a part of our daily liturgy. And I'm thinking about that context and perhaps even that being a part of the discussion. I don't know where that was historically for the Polish Jewry and for Rav Lichtenstein's community, but I'm wondering if that's a piece of this story is this idea that it's not so much that those people um, were terrible humans or behaved terribly in all instances, 
but rather that they trampled upon the notion that there were specific behaviors by which they were supposed to be living or specific halachot uh, um, beyond the mitzvot begadol, beyond the greater mitzvot, but specific behaviors by which we live, codes of law and codes of ethics. Thank you, Rabbi Chorney. Um, without wanting to lead the witness too much, is anyone willing to attempt to redeem this commentary or not that it needs redemption, to, to tease out of it or pull out of it something that could be a light that lights our way? What about what he's saying could actually end up being a really significant way to organize our religious and spiritual life? I think there's something illustrative here and helpful. Anyone? If you had to write a sermon and this was your core text, what would it be? Ben's going to give it a shot. So I'm going to kind of tie Rashi in here a little bit that this idea that, um, right, that was Rashi and Devarim, that um, these lighter commandments that may be really easy to just kind of tread over, those are the ones that we, that Yaakov is holding on to and grasping onto and saying, sort of like what Rabbi Chorney was saying, I don't want just 10 of these. I want everything. I want this entire tradition that's being passed down to me. Hmm. And so as the story goes on and we see wanting the birthright and all of that, it's saying, I don't want just part of my father's inheritance. I want the entire thing. I'll take all of it, no matter how difficult it is. Lovely. So if I can re rephrase what you said, Ben, I love it that, that this comment could be saying, I, I'm, not, I'm not jettisoning even the small things that when I do them as a Jew, the Christians think I'm I think I'm ridiculous, right? I'm going to, I'm even going to do Hoshana Rabbah and I'm going to do Shatnez and I'm going to do the things that, that, that someone else could be very quick to be Mizalzel. I'm going to hold that up as a centerpiece of what it means to Jew and follow God's law. Good. Anyone else want to try to read? I hadn't even thought about that as a read, so I like that. Anyone else want to, want to raise it up? Sandra? Okay, good. So Sandra, in case it wasn't uh, audible on the, uh, on the screen is focusing on his amplification of this achiza. The root Aleph Chet Zion is interesting. It could just mean to hold. Um, it could be to grasp. It could also mean to claim, like an achuza. In last week's partial, achuzat kever was a permanent holding in the land where Sarah was being buried. So there's something, um, there's something deep that is established when you're ochez, and she, so she is seeing Rabbi Lichtenstein hold up not just living Torah, but grasping Torah. I'll tell you uh, what originally um, touched me about this text, which is really, you know, I, I back created the text sheet. Oh, sorry, Henry. Thank you. It's not going to directly relate to this exact text, but I've been thinking this whole time about another way to interpret the concept of grabbing onto the heel of the mitzvah. When you're standing up, you're firmest on the ground when your entire foot is on the feet, mm. right? So... The idea is you want your entire foot. So that's another way to what, what they're talking about when they say. Good, Henry. Yes, Carmela? When he said Torah and he's holding it to everything, what is happening now that the Democrat and how no, 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 the no, 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 Carmela, we're not going there. We'll talk about, we'll talk about that another time. Toda, toda. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that another time. I'll end this year in the following way. 
microphone down. Put the candle back. Good. Okay. Uh, anyone? Young Frankenstein? Okay. Um, here's what originally was stimulated for me when I read this commentary. And I, um, I kind of back engineered the, the, the text study from it. I think some of my most successful parenting moments are when one of my children complains to me about something that a sibling or a friend did to them, and they're hurt, and they're wounded, and they want me to do something about it. And I think I'm at my best when I tell them, this is wonderful, because you now have a very clear example of how you don't want to be seen by others, right? We are conditioned to try to heal and fix situations. When your child is wounded, you want to help them, right? And when I'm, when I'm thinking clearly, when I'm parenting well, right, instead of trying to um, put the Band-Aid on the momentary wound, I'm trying to help them understand what is um, portable from this moment. And if this is the way that person made you feel, ah, you have one more clear understanding of who you do and do not want to be. There's something about what Rabbi Lichtenstein wrote that is a little bit jingoistic, and I want to take it out of the realm of Christians are bad and Jews are good, of course, because there are plenty of good Christians and plenty of bad Jews. But I do hold up the idea of grasping in our minds, pun intended, the image of watching how others treat people and moments and rituals and laws that are easily overlooked and being uh, in tune with how we respond internally in those moments and emotionally and say, ah, I have a new task. I have a new inspiration. I have a new motivation because I see what it looks like when that person treats that concept or that notion or that character trait in a mizalzel fashion. I now have an even greater obligation to be mechabed. Now you can do that looking outside your religious tradition. You can do it looking inside your own minion. I mean that very sincerely, right? Even in our wonderful community, we see people who are imperfect, as am I, handling a certain ritual moment or religious moment or ethical moment or interrelational inter moment in a way that makes us so obvious to us that person is not a, may not be a terrible person, but they're being mizalzel this. What's my obligation that moment? To get in the way, to stop, to chastise? Rav Lichtenstein might say, no, to obligate yourself to a higher standard as a result. And that to me is a core idea of what it means to be a person on a spiritual path, on a constantly learning and ascending journey, and going to a place where we are grasping the things that most deserve to be grasped, sometimes in response to our observing others who are trampling it and them with our feet. And as descendants of Yaakov, we should be constantly uh, on that pathway towards grasping the good and the right and the true and the loving. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.